Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast. My guest today is Alberto Alemano. Welcome, Alberto. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, Alberto is uh, is a good colleague and most importantly, he is the professor, Jean-Monet professor in European law at Hekpari uh, University. He's the founder of The Good Lobby and the author of Lobbying for Change. Really, really great book. I had the opportunity to read it in Florence before the, the trainings with Alberto. Alberto is involved in democratization of European uh, Union in many different issues regarding citizens' uh, activities. And also recently, he became awarded uh, a very by the prestigious Schwab Foundation, the Social Innovator of the Year Award, uh, presented at Davos Forum. So congratulations, Alberto, and perhaps uh, you can tell us, well, what was happening in Davos uh, this year? Uh, it's, it's kind of closed, um, closed meeting and they had a break. So you can tell us what was the award about and is it lobbying for change possible in the events like Davos? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Uh, Davos uh, triggers a lot of uh, uh, negative feelings. Uh, it remains uh, a very exclusive uh, event uh, by invitation only, with a strong presence of corporate interest. Uh, uh, but it has changed over time. I had the chance to attend um, a few times over the last uh, uh, six, seven years. And I might say that even Davos has been partly democratized in the sense that the voices who are represented there have changed over time. So just to give you some numbers, there are approximately 2,000 people who are invited to the Congress Center where most of the workshops take place. In this year, approximately 500 of them were not corporate uh, representatives. They were activists, social entrepreneurs, academics, uh, NGOs, uh, who were there to contribute, to diversify the, the voices. But of course, the format remained very much uh, top-down. The agenda is basically designed by the World Economic Forum itself, by Professor Schwab, who is the founder, who has been running this for more than 40, 50 years. However, the principle of stakeholder uh, multi-stakeholder uh, that has been uh, basically driving this uh, uh, Davos uh, formula uh, successfully over the last 50 years has changed over time because now uh, not necessarily all voices uh, were welcome. Uh, for the first time, uh, the WEF decided uh, not to admit uh, any Russian citizen or representative from the government by drawing a red line for the first time in history. Uh, something that has been raising some eyebrows, but uh, also something that has been praised by uh, many corporate powers and many other participants, including including myself. So something is changing, and uh, one possible uh, way of changing the boss is to basically mainstream uh, its ideas. How do you do it? Well, 95% of the program is streamlined, so everybody can follow the contents, so in a way the democratization occur also in terms of contents. Then, of course, you have a lot of bilateral meetings between head of state and government and corporations and also civil society organizations that are not necessarily public, but this, I think, is part of life. It remains a very interesting uh, gathering uh, where in a world in which multilateralism is no longer a la mode, uh, you have some uh, cooperation happening across sector, within sector, across different regions of the world. So I would not throw it away. Uh, sometimes it's important to also 
think about reforming what we have and what it works. And, and do you see some trends, uh, I mean, beyond, of course, the, the topic of the, of the day, which is the, the, the Russian invasion, I believe it, it dominated, at least in, in political aspect, the, the, the forum. But I think that was, was, at least for some time, kind of like a trend setting on kind of checking the pulse, pulse of the um, well, global elite. Do you see some other trends, especially in the area interesting for us regarding you know, citizenship, Europe, um, democratization? Do, 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 do you feel that this is the place where, where new ideas can be created, shared, and, uh, or at least uh, do you see that the global elites uh, is moving one or the other direction? Or you think it's pretty kind of constant and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of business as usual with just an exception for the for the invasion but but hoping that you know we'll all be, we'll come back to normal I'm, I'm i'm curious how you how you feel after attending this year i think you're right that uh, the world economic forum uh and in particular it's davos meeting has been extremely successful in identifying new trends and somehow uh putting those on the agendas uh, i remember my first time it was all about cryptocurrencies this year was all about the main there's, um, I don't expose uh, neither of them, but it's pretty clear that those are the trends where a lot of investments are occurring at the moment and where regulators struggle to understand what's the role there. I think the Davos is not about problem solving. Uh, it has always been about agenda setting. And in that sense, we need to measure its success against uh, uh, the latter. Uh, to what extent Davos is still relevant, is still capable of detecting uh, trends and acting as a facilitator for having different kinds of conversations that they are not happening within the UN system, they are not happening within uh, different regional organization or coalition of, of companies. And when you measure the boss from that perspective, I feel that the formula is still somehow working, but certainly has to be uh, modernized by being becoming more participatory in the way in which the agenda itself is, is contributed. So I've been telling Professor Schwab to imagine to set up a citizens' assembly uh, to mm. define the themes that should be discussed in 2023, in January, when the next Davos is going to take place. I was suggesting him to set up uh, uh, in the same way as Facebook did uh, an oversight body, uh, which is a sort of uh, Supreme Court of Facebook taking decisions. Well, Davos should do the same. Uh, there should be under international law some independent individuals able to define who should be in attendance and who should not be in attendance, because obviously now uh, the Russians were excluded, but why not the Chinese, uh, given the discriminatory actions taken towards the Uyghur? Or what about the Saudis? Uh, so who is next? I think there's a lot of blur, blur lines, and this is part of the complacency that I witnessed once more, in particular among the economic and political elites, even this year, uh, when basically were put into a corner by journalists and people like me who are actually brave enough to ask questions even in the boss, which are uncomfortable, they basically push back by saying, well, we need to be optimistic. Europe is speaking with one voice. We're getting, you, you are getting more united. Look at NATO, is it even expanding? Well, I find those lines very complacent because they basically don't recognize the reality in which we are in, meaning we are in the midst of a war uh, who has no ending. Uh, we are not uh, acting on climate uh, and we are already late and there's not really political will to adopt those um, technological solutions which already exist and even seizing the, the awareness that exists in society and the demand for action. 
So I don't see this as a very uh, rosy world uh, as it is depicted by, by the elite. At the same time, it is difficult to balance uh, this uh, sense of urgency that, uh, for instance, Commissioner Timmermans successfully expressed uh, in a private dinner with a lot of heads of state and government with the kind of delight to be together after these two years of the pandemic and to a proper conversation. So I understand also the difficulty for the organizers uh, to maintain this really fine balance between, between the two. But finally, on your point about democracy and how we can strengthen it or at least defend it, since there's a clear manifest erosion of democratic values all across the world, I think this was a bit the elephant in the room this year, meaning there was only one session devoted to democratic renewal, uh, which was pretty much uh, trivial, uh, not really discussing what is at stake. And the second one on trust, which I attended myself, uh, which was very much revolving around the presentation of the Edelman report with Richard Edelman presenting the new insights and showing that once more all the institutions are losing trust vis-a-vis -vis the average citizen, but with one exception, which is the business sector. So companies in the aftermath of COVID have been bounced back and now they are trusted more. But how realistic it is, and this was my point, to expect companies and corporations to actually fill up the gaps uh, left void by governments and to tackle major societal issues from climate change all the way to social justice. I don't think this is very realistic. Um, so it is pretty clear that this elephant in the room was there. Uh, there's not really much desire to talk about democracy, but there is a clear realization that even for the interest of business and our capitalistic society, unless we have stable, predictable institutions, business cannot thrive. Uh, and this realization, I think, was pretty much uh, clear uh, and is probably one of the major takeaways of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right, that's, uh, you, you, you did a fascinating presentation at Zagreb at the meeting of the young European leaders about, um, well, spectacular engagement of business in the, in the wake of the, of the invasion, how business reacted. Sometimes they didn't react and it was punished or at least somehow punished. Can you uh, tell us more about the, 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 the list, the work that you did uh, with your colleagues trying to combine the data about the companies which uh, did some kind of action. Some of them, well, did the full withdrawal from Russia. Some of them did nothing. And you were very successful in the early days of the war to actually put this together and, and present it to the media and I think make, uh, well, make a significant impact. Can you, can you tell us more about this, this project? And how do you also see in the, you know, it's been 100 years of, of war, how do you see the, the, the situation now for, for the business community? Um, I think it's less pressure right now than it was in the, in the early days. Yes, uh, the, the role businesses play in society, and in particular in our democracies and in government, is, um, is a delicate one, which has been uh, also slightly overlooked by political science uh, and by the literature and even by the media, because historically businesses have been trying to be neutral vis-a-vis uh, -vis the political sphere in order to protect their own bottom line they declare themselves as uh, uh, apolitical um, it is um, a great strategy not to lose market shares because you are taking a stance obviously this uh, could not last um, much longer uh, given the polarized society in which we are in given the inability of governments to actually tackle major societal changes and the fact that companies themselves are subject to greater 
scrutiny, uh, both by investors and, and by the public. So we have we've been witnessing over the last, I would say, 10 years, a, a major emergence of, of, of greater public scrutiny on businesses that is pushing them to take a stance on a variety of issues in relation to which they would probably prefer to remain silent, but now they can no longer afford not to take a stance because not taking a stand means to basically siding uh, with those people uh, who are uh, questioning uh, democratic values uh, or even espousing uh, discriminatory stances in our society. And I think the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine certainly provided an incredible case study in showing how responses businesses are expected to become if they want to maintain their license to operate in society. So what occurred on February 21st in the aftermath of the invasion was uh, that together with a colleague, um, an American uh, who is also part of the Young Global Leaders at the World Economic Forum and runs a company on ethical consumption, we have basically decided to team up and to set up what we have been calling the Ukrainian Corporate Index uh, that has been tracking live the responses uh, that companies had or didn't have in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In other words, where these companies uh, ranging from McDonald's all the way to Meta and Facebook uh, or airlines company taking a stance on the on the on the Russian invasion where they saying something or they were some simply simply uh, silent on this and and if they were silent well we, they stayed on a red color whereas we would have been given them a, a yellow if they were taking a stance condemning uh, this attack and the breach of major international uh, law uh, that it occur at the same time and those companies that managed to do both, meaning not only uh, sanctioning uh, orally uh, this attack, but also taking a market decision. So suspending the operation, the investment, uh, closing their shops uh, in the Russian market, where we're actually deserving uh, what we call the green label. So through this kind of uh, color-coded system, we managed to name and shame companies. We managed to name and fame and celebrate those companies that look more responsible. And the, re the, the overall reaction to that has been quite uh, overwhelming for us. This is something we did in-house uh, with a couple of analysts supporting us. Um, but in, in, in a matter of few days, as you probably uh, remember, uh, there was a public expectation that those companies would have been saying what they were thinking about the conflict and how they would have been acting. So uh, this has been an incredible experience that shows to us that not only companies uh, have to act, but also that the employees working for companies around the world who were operating in Russia, as well as customers, have an incredible power and a power that goes beyond consumption uh, because it was really about using social media, naming and shaming CEO, CFO, CEO, and even denouncing to us as whistleblowers those companies we didn't have the time to include uh, in our uh, categorization, in our index, and also denouncing the fact that sometimes there was a mismatch between what those companies were saying, we are closing the shops and what they were doing. Well, shops were still open in St. Petersburg or in Ekaterinburg right. or, or in Moscow. So this is something that uh, lasted for approximately five, six weeks. And then we kind of gave up. The media helped us to amplify the process. And as you were saying, now we see a bit of a plateau effect. The companies who were ready to leave, they left. But some other companies, um, they decided to stay. Um, and you're right, there is less uh, public pressure on them uh, because some of them raise arguments like we need to ensure the hygiene products or essential products, consumer products remain on the, market, mar the, on the Russian market. But obviously, this raises 
a greater, broader ethical question, right? What is good for the Russians? Uh, uh, do mm. you want to boycott the current government in order to hope there will be a regime change, or at some point you want to help the Russian population? By the way, there are two million Russians who left Russia, went to uh, Caucasian countries uh, from Uzbekistan to Armenia at the moment, uh, and nobody's talking about them. Uh, so you could see that something is happening there, and the media is not necessarily covering those moves. Right, uh, and they they have the 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 theory why. I mean, you are based in Paris, but it seems to me that actually so many French companies didn't act on this. Is it like is, is it is it fair? Is it fair observation or or it's 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 you know it's overstated? But it seems like the the French companies didn't care that much as 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 the others. Is it is it also your uh, outtake uh, from this from this uh, program from this from this action or? Um, or it's, it's unfair, or I am wondering if it's really, you know, if they can do more, is it like because the, the French public doesn't care that much, so they are not punished for their inaction, or there might be some other reasons for them not to mm -hmm. uh, act on the, on the invasion? Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that for certain industries, it was easier to take a quick response. If you are technological companies with very few employees and no production, uh, processes, basically no supply chain. If you're a service provider like Google, it's much easier for you to decide a withdrawal. Uh, instead, if you are an automotive industry, if you're a consumer products industry, obviously this takes more time. There are some companies having, you know, employing thousands and thousands of employees. So how do you do it? I think this was the major dividing line. The easy companies, the companies who really had the chance to leave, they left early. The other ones, they struggle a little bit more. Uh, the second point is that certainly uh, some companies, some brands in particular, uh, felt less pressure because their population was not necessarily as sensitive to the issue um, as that exists in other countries. So German companies were probably a bit more under pressure than the Italians or the French ones, simply because historically the Italian public and the French public is a bit more pro-Russian, mm. so they're simply giving a chance uh, to this process. So we saw several Italian companies, in particular luxury products, but also uh, food products that stay in Russia. In the same way, we saw luxury products, you know, in particular the big group like uh, LVHM and others really resisting uh, the pressure till the moment in which they had to give up. And by the way, they actually monetize incredibly their presence in the aftermath of the invasion because you had a lot of oligarchs and very wealthy individuals who realized that the rubble was falling and they want to basically to buy products when they were still able to buy those products through through rubbles and these occur in the aftermath of the of of the attack we had a lot of instagrammers from russia uh, keeping us updated on how things were happening so this was very useful but then, as you know, Meta decided to suspend our services, so we were no longer in touch with them. And I think Russia is getting more and more isolated uh, from very different perspective. And this is, in a way, um, even providing strength to Putin as opposed to damaging it, mm. meaning that the average Russian may say, well, look at the West, they're turning their back to us. Why should we uh, like them? Why should we change anything? Um, so it may, they, this moved by business might actually have worsened things. And we need to be very humble about it. We are not able to mm. make such an assessment today. Mm. Right. I suppose it could be a double-edged 
sorts. Uh, but on the other hand, people want their, their companies to be, you know, moral, uh, to, to behave in a moral way. It's, uh, I, I believe it's a hard call for, for everyone involved. I wanted to ask you because I know you, you are very much involved in a conference on the future of Europe. It's, it's just ended it's, um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, you, you write a, a lot about how, in, in your book, how the criticism uh, of, the, of the politics should be turned into the, the action and, and civic participation. Are you satisfied with the, with the process? Is it more about the uh, process than the outcome? How do you see the, this, well, pretty amazing, uh, pretty amazing project uh, taking place, quite unique, but is, does it live up to, to the expectations that you had at the beginning, or do you think that this is the beginning of something else? Or do you think that it was an interesting experience, but, uh, well, didn't fulfill, fulfill the goals and it would be just mm. a, you know, mm. uh, just a blip, but we, the, the European project will carry on. What's your, what's your take? Right. I think the jury is still out in the sense that the conference on the future of Europe is uh, over, formally speaking, but we don't know exactly um, how the institutions will be reacting, as well as the member states, to these beautifully crafted uh, 178 recommendations coming from citizens who have been randomly selected from all across Europe. Mm. Um, I think the conference went well when measured against this um, particular benchmark. The conference managed to create a transnational space, allowing citizens who usually do not talk about Europe to uh, somehow get involved, to feel Europe their own uh, place, and to formulate a set of expectations, which now have to be turned into a reality by, uh, by the European leaders. So we basically witnessed an incredible, unexpected flip of the traditional logic, according to which it is the institutions and the member states defining what's next for the EU, to a logic in which it is actually the citizens who are saying what they expect from the EU, and this is going to be driving the next phase. So when you look at the quality of these recommendations, I think you can see that it is not really... Uh, about the usual proposals. You could see a desire by the average citizens who were sitting there to understand a bit more about what's happening in Europe at different levels of government. They want to understand how decisions are taken, uh, what is at stake, how they can have a say, how they can be heard. And therefore, they ask for basically greater uh, transfer of conferences, uh, of competences from the nation state to the European Union. Uh, but not necessarily in a federalist way, uh, not in a blind way. And they ask for a set of reforms that would basically allow many more citizens, not only the 800 who were involved in the conference, but many more to actually own the European projects. So there are ideas ranging from getting rid of the veto so as to take speedier decisions uh, to the idea of having a European-wide referenda, allowing citizens through direct democracy to decide the direction to take. Uh, there are policy proposals for having a role, a greater role of the union on public health, on defense, on taxation. Uh, basically, there is an expectation that the EU could become much more sovereign uh, and autonomous in its relations with other, other regions. I think this is a powerful message, but the question is how the European institution and member state will react now. So as of today, in the, at the time of the European Council, uh, that has to basically provide a response, the first response to these recommendations, 
we can see that we have basically the member states being split. We have approximately 12 states led by Sweden with major Visegrad countries saying, well, we don't really want to reopen the treaties. But then you also have four or five major big countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, saying, no, we are ready to reopen the treaty. And then a third of them were basically neutral and agnostic. I don't feel, uh, I don't sense much appetite for treaty change. I don't think it's going to happen in the coming uh, days or weeks. The European Parliament is set to vote on this. But, uh, well, I don't think that this is going to be the traditional treaty revision. I would rather think that there might be some possible arrangement at the intergovernmental level. There might be some reforms which have already been somehow uh, lined up. Think about the public health, the creation of a health community. Think about uh, the possibility of developing a European electoral law with transnational list. Think about institutionalizing citizens' assembly uh, in the same way we experienced with the Conference on the Future of Europe. And uh, based on a study I conducted with my students only a few weeks ago, it turns out that 90% of these recommendations, including the latest I mentioned, um, they don't necessarily need the treaty change. So there is so much that could be done uh, under the current treaty if there's a political will and agreement among the countries, among the leaders, uh, to actually move on on this particular file. Well, let's, uh, let's hope that once the citizens feel they are in charge, in power, they have influence, they will not allow uh, the governments or the EU institutions to take over, to take the power from them. And I think that's, uh, well, it's basically the first step, uh, I hope, in the, in the democratization and civic engagement, and even if it's not perfect, um, well, I do, I do hope that this is the, you know, as it's kind of training, you know, you need to train the muscle for, for, for it to, to, to be strong. So we have to train our democratic muscle for it to develop. Uh, Alberto, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been very insightful. Thank you for, for, for making time. Thank you so much. Alberto Almano was our guest today. Uh, next week, uh, please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre. We'll meet in two weeks' time. It was Liberal uh, Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszewski. Thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends. <laughs>